Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. I love to see when a candidate has done their homework, when they come to the interview and they really know a thing or two about this company. What I did is I just copy and pasted the stuff that had made me successful in my previous company. And believe it or not, none of that landed. Leaders in general have a tendency to only thrive on successes and really don't take enough time to think about failures and mistakes. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 44 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Naveed Nazamian. Hi, Naveed. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Harsha. Wonderful to be here and very much looking forward to our conversation. Brilliant. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the followers of the podcast and YouTube channel for their amazing support. A special mention to the US, which has over 25% of the downloads. Please feel free to connect on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. Naveed helps senior leaders transition successfully into new roles by de-risking and accelerating their transition into the C-suite. He has combined working in the management roles in Vodafone, Roche, and Adidas with coaching executives from global organizations and successful high-growth startups. He is an ICF-accredited coach which took him on a three-year journey across three continents in Europe, Africa, and America. Naveed is the author of Mastering Executive Transitions, in which he distills key insights, guidance, and coaching for maximizing leadership impact from his experience working with over 100 C-level coaching clients worldwide. Welcome, Naveed. Thank you so much, Asha. Thank you for the warm welcome. I really appreciate it. But but it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is, yes. <laughs> and, and, and that's a, it's an interesting point when I speak to um, my guests because I, I don't think we should be celebrating our achievements every day. But sometimes it's quite nice to look back uh, on your qualifications, on your experience. And you know, people sometimes think they have imposter syndrome uh, because they don't deserve to be where they are. But actually, I think if you do look at the reality of your qualifications, your degrees, your experience, then you can actually see... Um, why you are where you are to a certain extent. And also there's a, a like a seamless thread uh, to getting you from where your start to, to now. Uh, but sort of going back to the show, um, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performance song, book or film, which you'd like to share, Naveed? Yes, I, I must say I'm not the most consistent uh, kind of music fan or, or art fan, but uh, if I had to pick one band, it's Coldplay. And uh I've been an avid fan uh, ever since I got to know them. And uh, my wife and I have been kind of, you know, sometimes touring the world, trying to <laughs> attend the concert in, in the most interesting uh, places. So that will be the one I would um, sh- share with you. Cool. No, no, I love love Coldplay, love their music. And I, I'm just impressed that you're traveling around the world to see them. Yes, not everywhere, I must say, <laughs> but we have done it uh, uh, three times now. So Excellent. we have seen them. 
different wow. places. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Chris Martin and the boys will be thankful for your support. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt he will know us, but hey, let's just go in with that assumption. <laughs> Well, he, he he might be a fan of reframe and reset your career. <laughs> anyway, get, get, getting back to the start, um, I saw that you put a master's degree from Hamburg University of Applied Sciences in international management. Now, was there a particular strategy behind this, Naveed? Yes, and, and you will be amazed to hear, Harsha, I never had a desire to work in the HR function. I really, I mean, you would have asked me when I picked up that study course, what I would like to become, it would be anything but HR. So it could have been marketing, it could have been general management, it could have been finance or economics. This is why I did not study HR management or organization psychology or psychology for that matter. Um, so I spent six wonderful years working in sales um, positions, two different sales positions in those six years. I was one of the very best. And uh, if there was one function I really didn't have a high admiration for, it was the HR function because I found them to be too admin focused, um, to, with too little understanding about the business that that I was, you know, considering myself a business leader. And third, and 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 probably the saddest uh, data point I had around HR was, you know, they 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 tend to engage when it's time for what is considered to be their process rather than when I need them, and so. Those were the kind of, you know, the, the dynamics that I um, uh, experienced as a, as a business manager. And for that reason, I was really interested in HR. So my aim was to study something that is more, uh, first of all, international, but also gives me more opportunities to, to look at uh, positions on the back end of it. Cool. So, so, Naveed, so what happened? So you were in sales, you were doing really well. So how did that how did you end up transitioning from that to HR? So I didn't realize yes. that part of the story. Yes. Yes, I had a lucky accident, Harsha. This is what happened. I, as part of my study, I was uh, working part-time uh, as a student. And I came, I, I worked for a media company called Bertelsmann. And they are one of the largest in Europe. They also have like publishing houses and so on. And I came across a different type of HR leader. Um, you know, it was a woman back then that they had implemented HR business partnering. And she was like defeating all the stereotypes I had in my head and in my you know felt sense of dealing with HR people she was proactive she reached out to me uh, on her own she actually helped me to uh, I was a project leader so I had a few uh, vacant roles to fill she helped me to find you know great people to come and perform in those roles and she, she even went as far to design like a half a day uh, how to interview candidates, uh, kind of like a crash course, the ABC of recruiting great talent. Because I was, up until that point, I had always been a candidate myself. I'd never interviewed anyone for a role. And so, so those were the elements that got me curious about HR. And I saw that HR can be different. So I didn't tell anyone from my sales colleagues that I will explore this a little further, but I actually went to Switzerland and work in an HR consulting boutique for uh, about six months and then I was really hooked. I understood that um, first of all, the six years I had spent in sales are not lost years, but they will serve me well because I have been a customer to HR and I get the co commercial aspects of the business uh, very well. And B, uh, I can actually be more impactful if I'm a great HR person rather than being a great sales uh, agent. And so that, that was the mindset shift. And this is how I spent the last 20 years uh, solely focusing on HR.
Oh, no, I just love that. And actually, my next question is, why did you go into HR? And I think you've answered that perfectly. Because, you know, uh, from my perspective, when I've worked in corporate, sometimes you think, well, HR there uh, to onboard you and then basically um, maybe compensation and then towards the end of your time. So you really don't have very much um, contact with them. But I just love the way you talk about it's almost reframing the role of HR and rather than just an admin compliance function, they're there to work hand in hand with the team and take you to a better place. Uh, is, is that correct, Navid? Yes, yes. I mean, I like to think of the HR function as the one that creates real impact the one that really has the organization-wide view and the one that can really serve the business to, to achieve its outcomes. And so for me, this is these are the hallmarks of, of effective HR leaders. You know, it's, you know, they're business leaders first and functional leaders second. Uh, and, and they really look at it that way. Yeah, and I think that's a great point in terms of thinking about the people, because actually for most businesses, um, especially service sector, the the asset you know apart from the brand is the people and if you're not keeping the people happy then there's something going wrong there so I, I just love that emphasis on the people uh, and 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 I think finding talent because actually talent they they have options they don't have to stay working for one company so you really have to make an effort to keep those talented people um on side so yeah no I, I just love that um and but but also i love your combination your specific combination of sort of hr business and coaching experience because i think that gives a really nice insight into the whole job search process from both the company perspective and the candidate perspective now um what strategies would you suggest for people who are looking for work at the moment either they've been laid off unfortunately or they're thinking about transitioning what, what would you suggest both from the hr perspective and the coaching perspective Naveed? yes so so if we wanted to look at helpful tactics to land your next role i mean some of the advice i would share uh, is around making sure that you cast your nets widely um you know you you should be reaching out to your network and let them know that you are looking for an, an opportunity. Ideally, when you're still employed, I think it's always easier to engage in conversations around job hunting when you are employed and really not having any push factors to look for your next opportunity. So in a way, being not actively looking and yet you can explore options. Uh, but even if you are in a position where you have been laid off, I think you should definitely be very proactive about it. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would I would suggest is that, you know, don't think of the job search to be a too narrow activity. So just going on job search portals or doing those kind of things. But really, when I say uh, activate your network, this could be former line managers, former colleagues, former peers that may have, you know, made the step up into a different organization, into a different position. That would be a good and helpful way of introducing you to someone else, let's say in HR, in that, in that organization. I'm thinking of engaging with headhunters, always when you're not actively looking, because it's much nicer to be on the radar and they reaching out to you to, you, to you know, explore potential opportunities. Then if you really like, you know, have been without a job for a month and now you, you, you're really getting worried that you may not be landing your next role. So it's, it's the element of proactivity. It's the element of networking. And of course, there's a ton of stuff you need to bear in mind when you get invited to come to the interview and, and, and have that conversation. And, and, and that is obviously a different thing. But, but I would say some of the tips I would give around 
finding your next ideal role are around those two elements. Okay, no, that's fantastic. And and actually, with the HR hat on, when uh, a company is looking at a candidate, what what are the things that you're looking for which can help them stand out? Because obviously, you know, looking at it from your perspective, you must be seeing you know hundreds of CVs and they all look good. Yes, sure. And again, maybe some of my fellow HR leaders will disagree with me, but I find um, it's it's important as a candidate to demonstrate three behaviors when you are going through an interview process. Whether it's virtual or face-to-face, by the way, it shouldn't really matter. Uh, But I find those three elements to be super helpful. First of all, it's the will. You know, I really would, if I'm in that position and I'm looking for my next role, I really would want to come across as someone who's absolutely willing and motivated to do this job. And not just that, but to really be committed to be, um, you know, doing this and whatever comes next. So, so, so sometimes you have those conversations with candidates, and and you're really, you know, feeling that there is no real hunger and and drive to want this job, uh, and, and that's never a good good starting point. I mean, if your energy levels aren't high enough, Hasha, during the interview process, imagine once you've signed the contract and you're in your first month or month three. Uh, what the energy levels could look like. So, so really, you you really want to bring that fresh kind of um, um, attitude towards the uh, interview uh, partners and the interview process per se. So, will I would say is the first one. The second one is skill. And again, of course, there is a reason you have been invited to do the interview. But boy, how much better it is to really bring that to life during the interview process. So to show that you are competent enough to be able to do what the job would be asking you to do and potentially more as well down the line. So really it's about being able to speak to your uh, strength and competencies. And of course, that comes with a degree of confidence. I don't think we should be too full of ourselves when we go into any process, whether it's the interview process or any other process, but really you know, being too shy and too humble. If, if I say imposter, kind of getting out our gremlins getting out and, and really starting to whisper into our ears you're really really not that good are you that is never helpful so i think you know after will uh skill is the other one and you need to be able to really narrow that down you need to be able to connect why what you have done previously directly connects with what the job is asking of any candidate to be doing and so that's the other part and of course there's a fine art of you know, at the, particularly at the most senior level, I would say you need to have your career narrative. Uh, it may not be as important if you're kind of more, more early in your career or maybe the middle stages, but towards the senior end, I would say it's really important that you're able to give your kind of career narrative uh, over the next 60 or 90 seconds when they are asking you about it. And, and only then you start to demonstrate what competencies you have and how you, you might be linking them to the, to the job. And the last but not least, so will and skill. And then the third one is the mindset. I, I, I can't uh, overemphasize this aspect. You know, the mindset, you can also call it attitude, is really, really crucial. I mean, I, I love to see when a candidate has done their homework, when they come to the interview and they really know a thing or two about this company. They have really, sometimes they research the interview partners if, they, if it's known to them who will be interviewing them. 
they are able to relate to the interview partners. Oh, I saw you you studied international management. And by the way, this was one of the courses I actually wanted to study, but I ended up going down the economy through and this and that. So you, you're able to relate um, in the moment. You're able to demonstrate that you have the right attitude to be able to not only fit in, but to bring in something that ultimately matters to the conversation and to the role. It's the will, it's the skill, and it's the mindset that you should really bring to shine during the interview process. I just love those points that you're bringing out, Naveed, and especially this whole idea of attitude and will. Say I was going to interview somebody. To, to get to the interview stage, they have the right qualifications and the experience, but it's really their attitude. And I think it's that whole can-do attitude. Um, and I think it's one of those things where attitude, you can't really teach. You can teach technical skills to some extent, but I think with attitude and a can-do approach, you, you really need that. Um, and, and also the mindset, just the idea of, okay, I'm going to keep persisting, even if there are uh, failures or struggles, um, I'm going to do what it takes um, to, to get through it. So I, I just, I just love that. And, and, and one other thing I think that's helpful, uh, or a nice insight was that the whole idea of imposter syndrome. Mm. I mean, first off, what, what I would say is I'm, I'm not a psychologist by background. No, no, so, course, so what yeah. I would say is through the lens of being a, an HR leader and, and someone who's worked in large yeah. corporates for a good part of, you know, 26 years. Um, so first off, uh, imposter syndrome is real, right? Uh, when, when I was doing the research for my book and I was looking at the data sets out there, I think one of the data sets I found was quite, quite intriguing. And that was suggesting that something like 66% of all uh, people at some point in their life have the imposter syndrome. And that is a, a large percentage, if you think of it, it's like two out of three people have had an imposter moment, let's call it like that. And so uh, the, it may or may not show up at work, but it definitely is something that you should be working um, uh, to, to overcome because I think, you know, if anything, uh, imposter syndrome can, can really get in the way. But that being uh, set aside, I guess you could look at it in many different ways. Um, you know, the other day I was reading an article about the imposter syndrome and it was actually highlighting the positive aspects of imposter syndrome. And I thought, that's an interesting angle. So, so everyone thinks of the imposter syndrome to be like something that you need to cut and stop and it's not helpful and so on and so forth. I, I think that's true. But if I wanted to, and this is by the way, this was written by David Clutterbeck, uh, Clutterbeck, so I want to give credit to the author. He's a, he's a coach and a professor as well. But he was talking about the upsides of the imposter syndrome. And if you wanted to, to look at those, it would be key things such as, you know, if you have self-doubt, right? What, you know, if, wanted, if you wanted to look at it in a positive way, what does it do with us? It makes us work harder and avoid complacency, right? So I don't know about you, Hasha, but in my book, that's a positive outcome, right? And yeah, this totally, is totally, yeah. Yeah, can, can actually be, be quite positive. The second thing he was uh, pointing out in the article was that it makes, us to, it makes us work smarter by prompting us to rethink our strategy. So because we, 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 we like to think of ourselves a little less than what we probably are, and this lack of this lack of belief or the the the, the self doubt that is ongoing really makes us to to work smarter as well because you know we really want to not be perceived like that. And then thirdly, he said that um, it also makes us better learners. 
and I know that you you know your podcast is also about learning and 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 career management and so on. And so, why is it is it making us to become better learners? Because it's you know we will seek support and ideas from other people. We we always want to you know do a good job, and therefore we don't want to leave it at you know chance. And so therefore we are always you know on the lookout for ideas and and support. And therefore I just thought you know when we get into this conversation, why don't we also focus it more on the upsides of the imposter syndrome. It doesn't always have to be something that we want to stop doing or cutting off and, and so on. No, I, I just love that point. And it's funny, every time I, I'm about to record a podcast, I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. Um, you know, my guests are going to not like me. Uh, I'm going to mess up the interview. I don't have the research. And that forces me to do more research, watch countless YouTube videos of you, um, which I enjoy. Um, and, 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 but I think it actually, and then once you've done the podcast, you think, oh, like it was no big deal, but it's only because you've done the, done the research, you've done the work, you know, like taking an exam or an interview. Uh, it's the best interviews, which go by very quickly. And you think that wasn't really an interview. That was more of a chat with a, with a friend. Um, so I, I just love those points that you're making there. No, that those are brilliant. Now, turning to your book, uh, Naveed, this whole uh, obviously mastering executive transitions. I really enjoyed reading it. Now, why did you write it, and can you give a quick overview and some insights from it? When I do keynotes about the book, the first slide I have is I'm on a mission, and I really am. Uh, and this is part of the reason, if not the main reason, why I wrote the book. Um, I have been working for some of the world's most admired companies. And you, for, for whatever reason, you could assume that they get everything right when it comes to people practices. And, and probably nobody is going to be surprised to hear that that's actually not true. And so that there's always things that we can do, um, you know, a better job in or be more effective at. So, so my mission is really to bend the curve of executive transition failure towards the successful and masterful and do it with ease and grace so this is what i what i want to achieve and whether it's the actual book whether it's the workbook that comes with my book this is what i missed with amazing books uh, that are out there because you're then left to do all the work yourself if you wanted to put it into practice and i didn't want to have a book that is a brilliant book theoretically speaking but a book that doesn't really help you to put it into practice. So if, if anyone wanted to buy my book as a paperback or a hardcover, they also get the workbook and the workbook helps them to actually implement the key ideas of the book in, in their real practice. Um, so that's kind of my mission. This is where I started. And I just see too many executive leaders struggling, failing, and too few organizations really uh, effectively supporting them. So, so that's my motivation. That's my reason why I wrote the book. No, that's great. And and I saw that it took you seven years to write it. Um, which oh my god. Is that yeah. is that right? <laughs> that's like it's a painful. Yes, it's it's true. And it I, I can tell you this. It it was for me, it was a lot harder to write a book than I thought of it to be. I had the, the pleasure of contributing uh two single chapters to two other people's books. So I just thought of it to be, it's that times 10 or 12. It's the same effort times 10 or 12. The reality is though, it's a lot easier to write a chapter for someone else's book because that's all you have to do. But if you want to write your own book, you need to have a red thread. Uh, you need to have a, a narrative, an idea around where do I start? Where do I go and how do I end? 
Uh, I had the, the ambition of writing a book that can be considered thought leadership. So I didn't want to just write a story or do like a you know nice little funny something. And again, I clearly underestimated that if you wanted to come up with your own framework that it can be considered thought leadership, that takes a lot of time. And more than that, it takes a lot of thinking and looking at other models and trying to distill what from all these helpful models out there uh, could be relevant to your own model. And then last but not least, um, I guess life gets in the way, Harsha. I mean, um, a year after I had started writing the book, and, and to be honest, I didn't have really produced much. Um, our son was born. And in between those seven years, we had I had to, to do three jobs in two companies across three countries. And of course, I, I was also doing the coaching on the side. So I guess the, the short answer to your question is because life gets in the way and because it's a lot harder than most people think. Um, um, that's just the reality of writing an actual book. No, no, I, I totally agree, and I, I, I'm trying to write one at the moment, Navi. So I can totally empathise with your um, with your position because actually, just producing a chapter, a self-contained thing, is fairly, you know, relatively straightforward, or or an article. But actually, having a consistent thread and a message, and you want everything to fit together, and, and also not just being theoretical, it's practical. So yeah, I, I totally empathise with that. So it, it's in terms of. Uh, executive transitions. Can you maybe give uh, uh, an insight to our listeners about you know, what is it and why is it so difficult? Yes. So first off, I think uh, so. So the forty percent failure rate is um, proven through four independent studies, and the most prominent one is Heidegger Struggles, one of the largest search firms in the world. They have placed over twenty thousand executives over a ten-year time period. And when they went back and did uh, the, the analysis, 18 months into the appointment, 40% of them were not around anymore. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a rich data set to, to have. And, and of course, the other studies all come to very similar conclusions. So nearly half of executives don't make it. Um, and that brings us to the question of how can this be? Like, this is incredibly um, unbelievable. What, how, how can this really be? At that level, I mean, they are very competent and, and really qualified in most cases. Um, so, so one of the reasons that gets in the way, Harsha, is the fact that a single appointment can include multiple challenges, right? So if I take my own example, I was hired from BAT, I was headhunted from BAT to come to and join a company called Roche, pharmaceutical company. I had to go through five transition challenges, although it was technically one job and one appointment. So I had the new organization challenge. I had to join a new company that I really didn't know and understand. And as a matter of fact, this is another fun fact about my career. I've never repeated the same industry. I've worked wow. in seven different industries in 26 years. I always had to adjust myself and onboard into a new sector. So next to having a new organization, I also had to onboard into a new sector and industry. Then I had the big promotion challenge. Um, I was hired into a global position. Previously, I was the regional head of HR. And so that meant I had 12 countries in Europe to look after. And I suddenly went from that to have a 140 country footprint. So having a weekly alignment call just doesn't work because there's no single time zone yeah. that aligns across 140 markets. Um, the other challenge I had to face, uh, and of course, nobody likes to admit this, I, I was summoned to the global headquarters. And whether people like to say it or not, there's a, 
high degree of corporate diplomacy going on in any headquarters environment. And so, you know, some some call it politics. And so 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 that that was definitely true. I also had to move internationally with my family. So that meant that again, with that comes a degree of culture adjustment and beliefs and leadership and what is acceptable behavior around here. And last but not least, I think what almost broke my neck was the fact that this position was created just before I was hired into. Oh, wow. So that meant that I was running around and kind of tapping into other people's established responsibilities. And they clearly did not appreciate that. So, so if you look at it through that lens, you suddenly understand why transitioning can be very tricky because it's 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 a stacking of multiple challenges that can come your way. And of course, there's a full chapter in my book dedicated to all of this. But I would say the the the, the stacking of the challenges is one of the aspects why the 40% failure rate is true. The second aspect I want to mention is that most executives go through their transition, as I have done many times, without any professional or qualified support and guidance. And then the third aspect, which is, you know, HR's role or HR's failure of delivering against the remit is that most organizations have amazing onboarding frameworks for the majority of the staff. But as soon as you hit that senior layer, there isn't anything. And so there's this inherent belief that they take all the money and throw it at the best exec and they hope that they're going to succeed. And as we know, six out of 10 make it, but four out of 10, unfortunately, they don't make it. Yeah, no, I just love that point. And, and and actually, that can apply not just to execs, but anybody joining the company that at a sort of a mid-manager level and above. Because yes. I think, yes. yeah, as we were talking about, I think look, at that mid-manager level, you'd have competence, you'd have some experience. But actually, what is really key, I think, is the politics and the strategy. Um, and actually, with your career, and, and, and one of the reasons why I've started this podcast and this work is, I think a lot of uh, career is about strategy. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to be the best person, but if you are, you have emotional intelligence, you have intuition, you can figure out the lay of the land. That's very powerful. So, would you like to sort of talk a little bit about maybe, uh, well, first the politics? How do you deal with that? Because I mean, in your situation, when you're the global head and then you're starting to encroach on other people's territory and responsibilities. That's not easy because then they feel threatened. Um, would you like to talk about that, Navi? Sure, sure. I mean, the, the, maybe I use a more extreme example. So I left Adidas after two and a half amazing years. And again, I was headhunted to come and join a company called GE, General Electric. Course, Back yeah. then, if you not, the most admired company in the world. So this was in yeah. 2004. Mm. And Harsha, I I failed miserably. And and <clears throat> I'm lucky in a way that I failed when it, when I was still early in my career. Was that when Jack Welch was he there at GE? Yeah, he, he had just passed the button to to the new uh, Jeffrey Milt was the name of the gentleman. Yes, yes. Uh, but, but you know his legacy was incredibly awesome. large, and so everything we used in GE was more or less invented by him or had a big stamp of Jack Welch on it. You know, the heck, they came up with the nine box grid. I mean, who could who could have believed that? Or when I joined them, they had set up this, what they call the mid-career recruit program to fast track, you know, talent into the most senior roles. And they had done that for, for about 30 years and nobody else, you know, had even thought of it. So they, they clearly did some really innovative uh, things. And I think it's proven not so much today, but even 10 years ago, 
if you look at the CEO appointments in the uh, S&P 500 companies, oftentimes they were headhunted from GE from the second and third benches. Oh, wow. And so you know, GE has really um, contributed a lot to the leadership of many organizations, even beyond itself. But but you know coming back to why I you know I, I kind of had to give up and and I didn't really work out in that environment was uh, quite a few things. So first up, and this can happen to anyone, and I was early in my career, as I say. So this would be very relevant to your listeners. Um, what I did is what I would claim every human being would inherently do, which is I just copy and pasted the stuff that had made me successful in my previous company, and believe it or not, none of that landed. So, so it was really, really hard um, for me to really do anything meaningful there. Um, and I really couldn't get up to speed with what, with, with, the, with, the, with what I needed to be changing because I had been so ingrained, not just also in Adidas, but in the previous two companies I worked for. And I, I really didn't, didn't, you know, get that right. And so, you know, I think it was something like seven months in, I had to pull the trigger and decide... Do, do I really want to go through this pain anymore? Or am I better off pulling the, the, the emergency brake, getting out of this train, and then figuring figuring out what I want to do? And I decided for the latter, and that's what I did. Okay, no, that's interesting, because I think, in a way, no, obviously, um, we're not making any comments on any specific companies. This is obviously from your perspective. But I think it's interesting how... Uh, yeah, not, not, trying to understand the culture of certain organizations, it's important before, um, you know, one, one joins them. Is there anything one can do as a you know, prospective um, uh, employee to figure out uh, what the, the culture is like? Um, so p- perhaps yes. that aligns more with your values, et cetera, et cetera? For sure. I mean, first off, um, don't do all the mistakes that I made. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the easy answer. And, and so, so what were those? And, and also, let me say this again, GE was an incredible company, the most admired company back in 2005. It was just that there was this mismatch between what I felt is important and, and truly valuable to me and what I saw. Sure. And so, again, that I'm, I don't want to kind of, you know, badmouth any, any company or any, any previous employer of mine. It just didn't work for me. And this is why I mentioned the example with the S&P 500 and so on. So, of course, yeah. produce some great talent. Yeah. Now, what, what are the kind of things I didn't do? Um, and, and maybe back then they didn't even exist. So, um, you know, something like Glassdoor or LinkedIn, you know, where you can start to educate yourself about your prospective new, uh, you know, future employer. Um, reaching out to my network and speaking to people who work there. I mean, GE back then had 315,000 people. Surely I knew at least a handful of people who worked there. And so I could have just, you know, had conversations with them to to help me understand what is this company like? How does it feel like to be part of that organization and and working for them? Um, It could be things like uh, really looking at, and because GE was a conglomerate, you know, the different divisions, I'm sure, had even their own micro set of cultures. Yeah. And so, again, you know, if you want to go into the oil and gas business in GE, or if you want to join the pharmaceutical division or the insurance or the capital market uh, division, they, they may be distinctly different. So, so once you have decided which one of those you want to go and work for, then you narrow down your research into that area and so on. So these are just some ideas how you can be a little more strategic about your choice 
and making sure that you do educate yourself to the best of your uh, ability before you're seriously pursuing kind of an engagement. Yeah, fantastic. And 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 also in your book, you made the interesting point that there sometimes appears to be a gen- gender bias in supporting executives in transition. Um, and what what do you think can be uh, done about this? Is that incumbent on the uh, the candidates who gets the job, or the organisation, or or both? Um, what do you think? Yes. Be? Yes. So first off, I delayed the launch of my book and I think my publisher was about to kill me um, <laughs> because each time I got my hands on a fascinating new study, <laughs> I told them that, oh, I need first to work through this and that's going to be another two week or four week delay. Yeah. And after the third time or so, they, they had to remind me of our legal terms and conditions and whether I was seriously suggesting to, to be in breach of those. But, but kind of on a more kind of um, pragmatic note, I got, I got hold of this study. It was conducted by uh, DDI and it came out late in 21. It, was, it must have been like August or October 21. And uh, what they had done is what every good study should be doing. They had been asking the demographic questions right at the, at the outset. And what they figured out, and it was not the aim of the study to measure that, but what they figured is even those companies that do support the leaders in transition, in those companies, there seemed to be a gender gap between what the female execs get and what the male execs get. And that was the, the point of curiosity I had around, how can this even be? So by the way, the, the, the delta is between 13 to 22 percentage points. And that's wow. significant. Statistically, that's a significant number to have. So and th- there were items such as, what is the percentage of those execs that received leadership skills training right after they joined the company? How many of them were, what is the percentage of those leaders that were formally assessed using a diagnostic tool? And how, what is the percentage of those execs who were assigned a formal mentor or a coach to help them with the transition? And this is where the, the numbers vary uh, quite a bit. And so I, I guess you could, you could start to interpret what, as to why that might be. I mean, I have had a lot of negotiations with all sorts of different execs over the years. And I just find that the male incumbents are a little more forward coming with what they want than maybe some of their female counterparts, right? I want the corner office, I want the second PA, and I also want the exec coach, right? And then only then I'm going to sign. And, and by the way, my salary needs to be this much. Otherwise, I, I won't even engage in this conversation. And then I, I find the female execs to be much more decent and much more realistic <laughs> at times. And that doesn't seem to be playing in, 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 in their favor. So... So, so, and, and, you know, if you were, wanted to take this further, what would be the one action that would eliminate any gender bias in leadership transition support? And that could be simply, you know, you define the level of seniority in your organization. Let's say when you make the step from director level to a VP level or whatever that is. And everyone at that level will be assigned these support tools, full stop. In one go, you will eliminate any gender bias because it doesn't become a negotiation item or something that people feel comfortable going forward and asking for or not. But really, it's like, congratulations, you made it to this level. This is the support that's available to you. No, I like the word. Uh, the reason why I'm laughing is I like the word you use, decent, about the female executives. Um, and, and in a way, yeah, no, I totally agree. Sometimes in that negotiation thing, you have to be sort of quite pushy and demanding. And maybe um, for you know, our female listeners there who are thinking about you know, uh, new roles or new organizations, don't be afraid to ask because it's much easier to get 
things when you haven't signed on the dotted line. But also going on from that, I think this whole idea of coaching and mentorship, it's really about speaking to somebody, uh, having uh, somebody who doesn't have sort of skin in the game and trying to get an independent view um, of what you can do. And and it's, it's almost like trying to create your own strategy and then having these milestones. Um, maybe you want to talk a little about that, the whole idea of coaching and creating a strategy and a framework. to Because I think in your book, you talk about having goals and milestones throughout this 18-month period. Is that, is that correct, Navid? Yes. So I introduce in my book the so-called double diamond framework of uh, leadership transitions. And uh, there's this very popular book out there, Hasha, you may have read it yourself. It's called The First 90 Days. And as much as I love reading that book uh, almost 20 years ago now, uh, it's, it's quite dated and it really is nowhere near sufficient for transitioning more successfully at the executive level. So, so just to, to, to make that comparison, uh, my double diamond framework has consists of seven unique phases. And the first 90 days is, is one of the seven phases in my wow. book. So okay. I find that at the very top, transitioning is more like a 12 to 18 months journey. And sometimes a journey that, that keeps repeating itself, by the way. And so therefore the, the idea, as much as I love the idea of starting on day one, be done with it on day 90, the reality is no C-level leader that I have had the pleasure of working with or knowing of has had that time frame to, to fully transition. So that's what the model is all about. And again, the, the beauty of having an executive level appropriate framework is that you can really take it and put it into practice. So you know, again, if, if anybody wanted to buy the actual book, they also get the actual workbook. And that means that if you're the executive yourself and you want to work with their framework, you get to use the workbook yourself in, in, in your uh, own time. If you are the HR person that wants to support the executive in transition, you can have them uh, work with you or give them the, 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 the workbook and, and, and then they work it through themselves. Or the ideal state, of course, would be the luxury would be to have a coach that has done this multiple times over with many, many more C-suite clients that can help you to really, uh, you know, transition more smoothly and derail the risks that are waiting for you. As we know, the odds are all stacked up against you and uh, doing, doing it with ease and grace. And so that's the whole idea about the framework. Yeah, and, and and it must be, I imagine, very lonely if you're the uh, CEO of a big organization, because obviously you have the people on your board, you're, uh, you have direct reports, but clearly they're looking to you for guidance. So you, in a way, you need to find some trusted people, whether it's a mentor or a coach or whoever it is, where you can really be honest. And And you know how it is, people sometimes it's just not honest uh, because either they're afraid, they don't know what you're going to uh, think, uh, um, you know, there's career risk. Um, so there are all these multiple things going on. So, yeah, I, I think that's such a great idea of having a coach or somebody you can speak to about this. Um, but yes. uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to give you a real-life example of this loneliness at the very top. So I'm working with a gentleman who was only announced to be the next CEO. So this gentleman is not the CEO at the time when we had this conversation, but he was announced to become the CEO, let's say three months down the line. And in one of our sessions, he told me, Nabid, can you believe it? When I walk into the office kitchen now, people stop talking. 
And he's quite a sociable guy. And, and, and again, you know, by judging, I've seen his 360, so I can, I guess, have some data points around it. People seem to be loving him. He's really a, 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 an inspirational leader, someone who's really, you know, caring about his people and so on. And despite that, you know, people are just choosing to be a lot more mindful and, lip, you know, um, close lip about what they share with him, how they share it and so on. And uh, he said, you know, all, all I get to see is now the, the, the management dashboard. And you can't run a company on a management dashboard. You need to, to have those informal conversations and those kind of real life data points that only find a way, you know, weeks after um, the, the event happened into the management dashboard. So it, it, it is true. And, and that, that was the data point I wanted to share with you around the loneliness. So, so how, how, as an executive leader, how can you, um, you know, resolve that? Is it just about trying to say, look, this is a culture of openness and not just saying it's openness, but actually acting? Uh, what, what do you think, Naveed? Yeah, I mean, one of the tools I use in my signature year-long program with XX is uh, a, a, an assimilation exercise. So this is the newly appointed, let's say, C-level leader, whatever the, the title is. And uh, it's a process that is facilitated by somebody, that somebody can be me or could be someone from the um, inside the organization. And um, it's, it's quite a detailed process. But by the way, this is a process I took from GE. So, you know, I have to give credit to, to GE to, uh, to, to have come up with this process. But essentially, um, the process helps both to, to the, the incoming leader to open up towards the team that they will be inheriting. And at the same time, it helps the, the executive to learn more about their team. And I think that's one of the first things that should be happening, let's say, three months in. Um, and that exercise does a few things. One, it establishes trust because it's a very guarded process and it can be quite a, you know, intimate kind of type process. The second thing that it does is because it opens up, you know, um, the, the, the trust kind of angle, it also opens the lines of communication. So people have uh, more trust to come forward and, and let's say report bad news, although technically they would, they would really not want to be, you know, the person that breaks the bad news or anything. And then third and, and most importantly, it, it, what it does is it gives the, the leader traction and, and speed, which is also what my framework is all about. I mean, one of the ideas behind the framework is it will help the exec to be more productive by at least 50% or more oh, wow. because they will be having a framework that really has thought about typical aspects of a transition at that level. And therefore, by seeing that and by reflecting on what does my reality look like against what I'm reading here, that reflection, that exercise, that kind of embodiment of, of what might be lying ahead really helps them to gain those, those um, yeah, moments. And so, yeah, that's, that's just one idea around how you can work with the leader to help them uh, become more impactful more quickly. Yeah, brilliant. And, and sort of even for people at a more junior level, this whole idea of transition, I think it's very important. Uh, any thoughts about what they can be doing? Um, so uh, presumably they can ask for a coach when they're joining, but even if they don't, maybe they uh, get one. Presumably they can hire one or what are your thoughts on that, Naveed? Yes, yes. I mean, anyone really can use my model. It, it is just most suitable for the senior leadership. But let's say if I'm a middle manager, um, you know, if I look at the seven phases and if you take like three or four minutes just to go through them, the first phase is called discover phase. This is day minus 90 to day zero. This is the counter idea to first 90 days, which is wait until day one and only get started then. 
Um, you can start, you know, up to three months ahead because you will have uh, things to read about. You will have data points you can use. You can engage with your future team and future line manager if you have already signed the contract. So, so that's that's the first thing. Um, and this this phase is all about pre-informing yourself about what lies ahead. Then we get into the actual first ninety days. I call that phase the immerse phase. And the immerse phase is all about immersion. You, you're new to the business. You really take your time. You go around. You speak to all sorts of different people. You try to make sense of the reality that you're finding um, yourself in. And then that gets us into phase three. So this is day 91 to day 120, so month four or so of, of your journey. And uh, this, is, this phase is called ADAPT. So this is where you need to start to not only make sense of what you're finding, but start to a degree to adapt to that. This is what I was really bad at in GE. I never adapted to anything. I was just going from irritation to irritation to confusion to confusion. And so this is ideally you know, dealt with at this level. You have been long enough in the business to understand what is acceptable behavior here, but you're not part of the furniture yet. And therefore you, you still have fresh you know, perspectives on things. That gets you into phase four, which is the mobilize phase. And in this phase, you really have to demonstrate that you're able to mobilize behind a project, an initiative, a department, or a cause. And again, this is months four to six. So you're roughly you know, four to six months in, and you need to start to gather the kind of momentum. And that gets you into the operate phase, which is phase five. So this is months six to nine. And this is where you have to really demonstrate that all of the stuff that's happened before is now coming. This is where the rubber hits the road, right? But this is where you have to show that you're capable of delivering things that were expected of you to be doing, as well as maybe some extra things that nobody even thought of that you could be um, doing on behalf of the company. And that that gets you into sixth uh, phase. And the sixth phase is called nourish. This is your months nine to 12. And this is where you start to you know, um, you know, take those fruits off the tree because by then all that stuff that you have done before in the first nine months now starts to really show traction. This is where you can have your low hanging fruit already being visible to many people and people believing in the direction in, in the mission that you are there to help achieve. And then last but not least, this is the phase that is skipped the most by uh, at least the executive leaders. I call that phase develop. And this is your reflective moment. Um, again, you know, particularly senior leaders and, and, and leaders in general have a tendency to only thrive on successes and really don't take enough time to think about failures and mistakes. So I learned that the hard way after I left GE, I really reflected on what went wrong actually here and why didn't I succeed? But it's, it's, it's clear that if, if I had taken the time to do it uh, there and then, it would have been really helpful for me. So this is looking back at, what did I do that worked? That's good. I want to acknowledge that. I want to appreciate that. What, what things did I do that didn't really work? And why was that? What was the contributing factor to that failure? And what is the learning I want to take out of this for the next transition, the next onboarding? And so then that it becomes like a muscle. You know, if you go regularly to train that muscle, then it becomes muscle memory. So it's not something you need to remind yourself of but it's something that you can embody and you have the innate experience in yourself and you can put it into practice.
Yeah, and I, and I think having that self-awareness to say, look, okay, there are things that went well, there are things that just didn't go well, and really trying to uh, implement those. Because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, tend to shy away from the bad, but sometimes it's better just to confront it. And, you know, like yourself, if you could maybe pick up some of those things quicker, then uh, it can inform you going forward, can't it? So, yeah, no, I just I just love those points. Now, Naveed, I know we're coming up to the end of our hour, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you, uh, you're you a busy guy, so I don't want to uh, keep you. Um, uh, I, I like to sort of end the, uh, the, the discussion with uh, offering my guests a chance to thank or give a shout out to somebody who's helped them in their career. Is there anybody you'd like to um, mention, Naveed? Yeah, so I want to acknowledge one of my mentors called Rudy Kins. He used to be the CHRO of BAT, a company I used to work for for six years uh, after my unsuccessful stint at GE. And, and he has been everything to me that a great mentor could be to their mentee. So he has been an extraordinary leader. He has really helped me to reflect on my career decisions. He's been someone that hasn't been shy to tell me the truth as and when it was required. Uh, but most importantly, he's been someone that's really believed in my innate cap capabilities and abilities. And so, you know, if, if I can just uh, give a shout out to him now, then that's uh, that's a great moment to do that. Thank you. No, no, my, my pleasure. And, and I think it's really interesting, that whole idea of, of careers, that you need people to believe in you. You need people to give you a chance. And actually, for people who are struggling out there, you only need one person. Uh, you only need one job. And even if you've applied to 100 places and you get just one uh, uh, successful offer, th that doesn't matter. Just go for it and, and make the best of it. Because I think once you're inside the door then uh, and you're doing things and you're uh, adding impact, uh, you can create an amazing career, can't you? Absolutely. Absolutely true. Fantastic. And, and Naveed, uh, I'll make sure all your uh, social media details are on um, uh, the show notes. Uh, and and I, I'm sure you're happy to connect with people on your various platforms. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And I would say LinkedIn is the place to, to go. Um, I live and breathe LinkedIn uh, on a daily basis. I have a good following and I always appreciate people reaching out, following me, connecting with me. And if I can, can give value to them, then then I would appreciate that. Fantastic. Well, Naveed, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, wishing you, you know, continued success with your book and your career. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hopefully catching up with you in person at some point. Thank you so much, Asha. Thanks for the invite. All the best. Take Brilliant. care. Take care, Naveed. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.